I'm sorry, that uh, song really touched me. I'm going to be a little shaky for a couple of minutes. <clears throat> Jenny has the perfect voice for the words of that song. But the reason why I'm so touched this morning is not only because they're true, but sometimes when a preacher wakes up on Sunday morning, he says, Lord, and I say to him, Lord, I can't do this without you. Are you with me? And it just turns out a lot of what she sang is what he told me this morning in my time with him, and I just, uh, mm, a little overcome. <laughs> The title of the message today is, He is not like us. I get to do one of my favorite things today and talk about God. The first four words of the Bible say, In the beginning, God. Have you ever thought about what was here before those four words? It was just God himself, which begs the question or questions, where did God come from? How long has he been around? The assumption is made that he began to exist like we do in a place like we did, right? Everything we know and understand has a beginning and as far as we can see has an end as well, doesn't it? But God is not like us. There was never a time that God did not exist. He did not have a beginning. He was not born, nor was he created. And our humanist wants to ask, but where did he come from? When was he born? It's a hard thing for us to grapple with because it's so foreign to us. Because he's not like us. He's always been alive. He always has been and He always will. There will never be a time when God does not exist. God did not have to come from anywhere like we do. And then we think too, where is God? God is everywhere. He's in heaven. He's everywhere. How can that be? A little boy once said it really well. He said, God is so big that he doesn't have to go anywhere. <laughs> I, I think he probably understood Isaiah 40, verse 12, very well. I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation. It says, who else has held the oceans in his hand? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale? Try to wrap your mind around that. And you say, wow, he's not like us. That's kind of an understatement, isn't it? Have you ever asked yourself, I wonder what God is thinking about right now? As you might imagine, from what little we looked at so far, his thoughts are very different than ours, aren't they? And he probably has a, a lot more than we do. I recently read that each day the average person has about 50,000 to 70,000 thoughts. You didn't think it was that many, did you? But it turns out it works out to about 35 to 48 thoughts per minute. You think, well, all that thinking going on, how can we get anything done? And when someone starts a sentence with, you know I've been thinking, it's really no little thing, is it? 
And there are days, I'm sure, where you feel like you're thinking a whole lot more, huh? And you think that thinking might make you a little tired, and it does, doesn't it? I suppose we could also measure the intensity of thoughts and maybe the length of thoughts as well. So what is God thinking about right now? And it's important to know that, of course. I'm going to look at several things about the way God thinks or what He's thinking about. We're going to look at um, watching what He does, considering what He says in order to understand His ways and His thoughts. And then, what should that mean to us? Well, first of all, one of the ways you know what someone is thinking is by watching what they do, right? And one clue that helps us answer that question is actually found, I thought, in Romans 8.28. There's lots of ways to go about this, but this is one of my favorite verses, and it really speaks to me on this subject. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. First notice that it says he causes all things, all. A most significant word used in the Bible, I think. I love the word. He causes all things to do what? To work together for good. He's making good out of all things, even the bad. He actually has the ability to do that, and that's a whole other subject I'd love to talk about someday. But this is really a tremendous statement that the Bible is making. If he's working absolutely everything in my life and in yours so that it makes for good, then he's doing a lot of work in a lot of people's lives, right? And that means he must be pretty busy, don't you think? And if he's really doing this, then he's coordinating and affecting the lives of billions of people all at the same time. Contrary to how it may seem sometimes, we think you're waiting for God to do something, He's doing it, or he's already done it, and you just haven't figured it out yet. But imagine the thinking he must do daily in order to accomplish all that he does. And he does not take breaks, doesn't go to lunch, doesn't take vacations, nor does he retire. In fact, he does not even sleep, ever. Imagine how many people are praying to him at any one moment. And he's thinking and acting on every single one of them all at the same time. Isn't that great? Imagine if you had to take a number. (laughs) Wait for God. You're waiting a long time. (laughs) Well, how can he do this? Well, he can do all this because, first of all, he knows how. And he knows everything. He can answer all the prayers because he knows all the answers. He can do whatever it takes to answer each because he has all the power and the wisdom it takes. He will do all of these things also with what? The best of motivations because he is love. All will be done perfectly down to the last detail, even the smallest thing, because he is perfect and he's holy. Ah, Wouldn't you like to have a friend like that? Imagine the peace and the security and the love you'd have. He is a person without limitations like you and I have. You might say, John, well, I read the verse there. It says this is for the people who love God. What about us who don't really know Him? 
And I can tell you that he says in this great book that he's not willing that any of you should perish, not one single person. If it were up to him, all people would be saved and know him. And you can tell that by the verse that you probably should know, very familiar verse, John 3, 16. What does the first few words say? For God so what? Loved who? The world. That's right. That's right. So he has a desire to save all, and he did do something about it. And when you come to understand this and have a choice to love him or not, um, I hope you make the right decision. But for now, you should understand, yeah, he's thinking about you. He's thinking about you every day. And I cannot tell you or measure for you how compassionate those thoughts are for you, but I can tell you they are. And I don't know how he's going to bring you to fully understand so that you really see the choice you need to make about him, but I know that he is. So let's get back to what is he thinking? Well, it's all there, isn't it? He's thinking about us. What does God think about? He's thinking about us all the time. And his thoughts are incalculable. And you think, how can he do that? And we forget he is that great. His greatness is so great that when we use the word great to describe him, we ought not use it for anything else. How much good it would do us to often contemplate the greatness of God. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 139, verses 17 and 18, and because he was thinking about it. He says, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. He has more thoughts than there is grains of sand. Incalculable. Do you think there are more than 18,250,000 grains of sand in the world? Well, of course you do. They're incalculable, right? But 18 million is the number of thoughts we think in a year. Yeah, he has more thoughts in a day than we do in a year, doesn't he? Notice what the psalmist says. He says, how precious are your thoughts to me. He doesn't say us. So when he's talking about all these thoughts, he's just speaking, that's, that's all your thoughts for me, Lord. Times however many people there are in existence, right? Well, the number of thoughts toward the psalmist was more than the grains of sand, which that gives, gives you an idea, right, of what's going through the mind of God at any given moment. Doesn't that make your mind race? Hmm? How many thoughts are you having now? What kind of thoughts are you having now? You ought to be having the highest thoughts possible whenever we think of God. So now let's look at it. You can also know what a person is thinking by what they say. And here's something amazing that this wonderful God has said. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 55. We're going to start in verse 6. I'm going to go through it verse by verse. <clears throat> now watch what he says here. Seek the Lord while he may be found. You stop right there. If we have to find him, that means we don't have him, right? 
For some reason, there's some kind of separation. But he's telling us to seek him, isn't he? Can you imagine this great being wants people like us to seek him? Why would he do that? Why should he bother? And then the last half of the verse says, call upon him while he is near. And he tells us to call upon him. What does that mean? That means he's waiting and he's listening for you. Notice it says to call upon him while he is near. It's implying that he's near now, but at some point he won't be. You might say, but I don't see him. He doesn't feel close. Consider this, my friend. We just discussed his thoughts and some of his actions. And it's on a scale that you and I cannot imagine. It's so great that what little we talk about is just barely scratching the surface. What about all the other things about him and the things that he's done, his attributes and his ways? You got to get the idea, begin to see at least, that he's not like us. He's very different. And if that's true, he might be near and you're not realizing it, right? Consider a man standing in a place and there's an ant standing next to his foot. Consider uh, what the ant comprehends about his existence and what he can see and compare that with the human being standing next to him, what the human knows and can see, right? The ant might not even realize he's standing next to a person, right? All he sees is a, is a big shoe. And he doesn't even know what a shoe is. He really has no clue about anything, does he? Can't you see this is how it is between us and God? He's that great. Do you see that? So when it comes to existence about what is real and what is not, if God is near or God is not, you've got to see that we're like the ant when it comes to God. He is that great. And if we look at this properly, we would conclude that he is more real than anything else that we see. And if he says he's near, then he is near. Period. End of story. By the way, for those who say the Bible was written by men, I want you to stop for a moment and consider the things that uh, we just talked about. Not something men would write, would it? We're stepping into a realm we know very little about. I like the, uh, I read a little short clip. Uh, there was a, a man named William Beebe who was a naturalist, and he often made visits to Theodore Roosevelt, the former president. And after an evening talk, the two of them would go out onto the lawn and look up at the stars, and they would search for a spot of starlight light near the lower left-hand corner of the great square of Pegasus. I wish I knew all these stars, but I don't, but you get the point. Then Roosevelt would recite, that is the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. 
It's as large as our Milky Way. It's one of a hundred million galaxies. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our own sun. Then Roosevelt would grin and say, yeah, I think we're small enough. Let's get some sleep. He had the perspective right, didn't he? So if we're going to seek God, we're kind of like the end. We're going to need some help. But it's wonderful that in this passage, he actually tells us what to do. Look at verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Oh, that doesn't sound like good direction, does it? I'm not wicked or unrighteous. Who's he talking to? Well, you might say that doesn't apply to you, and maybe you might even say it doesn't apply to me. But you have to remember that God wrote this, and he thinks differently than we do. So we better look at it a little bit closer and ask ourselves, who are the wicked and who are the unrighteous? Well, first of all, he's really only talking about one person. He's not talking about two. The two words, wickedness and unrighteousness, are very similar in meaning. Parallelism is being used here to speak about one person, and he's showing the steps of seeking him. It's a progression. You know, let the wicked forsake its way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. He's talking about there are things that you're doing you need to turn your back on, and your thoughts are just as bad. Why thoughts? Are thoughts really that bad? Well, you consider the fact that there are absolutely no unrighteous thoughts in God's mind, and there are none in heaven. Thoughts become a little bit more serious, don't they? You might not think it's all that bad. But I can tell you that if there was a person who could read people's thoughts, you and I would probably avoid that person, wouldn't we? That tells us something about thoughts, doesn't it? It is that serious, isn't it? It does mean something, especially when you consider... You know, you do have some particular thoughts long enough and often enough, you're liable to do it, aren't you? It's happened over and over again for all all of time. The terms wickedness and unrighteousness, they simply mean guilt or criminal or guilty one or one guilty of a crime. The word is used in the New Testament also of a person committing wickedness stands guilty as a convicted criminal of harming others and themselves done intentionally with malice, and indicates the depravity of the individual. Okay, so if we think about wickedness and unrighteousness, my thought used to be, well, wickedness, that's really extra bad. But the real definition of wickedness here covers quite a broad range, doesn't it? And that means it covers a broad range of people, too, not just a few hardened criminals, right? Have you ever been guilty of doing something wrong? Yeah, me too. Have you ever done something to hurt someone else? Yeah, me too. It's a pretty common human characteristic, isn't it? And we broke his law. It's as simple as that. It doesn't just apply to the hardened criminal. It applies to anyone who's guilty of breaking God's law. And so when we ask ourselves, well, who would that be? If you've answered the question, well, that means everybody. You got the answer right. How do I know that? Well, I read something else that God wrote. It's in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. It says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. 
There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. Hence him telling us to seek him. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Some of you are about to say, but what about so-and-so? You have your answer. Not even one. According to the standard of God, and not the standard of man in his religions, we're all wicked and unrighteous. We've all done things to hurt others. And truth be told, we've done things that hurt ourselves, too. We really hate it when we're watching somebody else hurt themselves, right? And yet we do the same. We have lied, taken things that haven't belonged to us, did things that physically hurt others or hurt their reputation. We've taken God's name in vain. I did that in my lifetime more than I can count. We commit adultery and murder in our hearts. You know, our difficulty comes because we don't see these things as being all that bad. We're so used to this behavior, it's so common in our lives. But it's not common in His, and it's not common in Him. He is not like us. Think of the young kid whose, kid whose friend is pushing him to steal money out of his mother's purse so they can go do stuff, right? He, he tells me, yeah, we're going to have a good time. Well, don't worry about it. She won't even notice. In fact, if she does notice, she won't be able to prove you did it. Some of you have probably heard kids say that before, huh? I know I have. The kid falls for it. He allows someone else to convince him that it's not that bad. And he goes and he steals out of his mom's purse, but he, she catches him. And then the seriousness of the sin becomes obvious, doesn't it? And the pain it causes is severe. And you think, well, it doesn't just stop with young kids, does it? And we move up to the teenager. You have teenagers who convince others, hey, we're going to go for a joyride and do some drinking. Everybody else is doing it. It'll be fun. And two hours later, the car is wrapped around a tree and half the kids are dead and the ones who live now face the authorities and their parents. And the seriousness of the sin becomes obvious. You think adults are immune to this? They also get convinced to steal things at work, cheat on their taxes, cheat on their spouses. I told everybody does it. It's not that bad. In some cases, they say, oh, well, you deserve it. It's the same story over again, just a different age. And they end up losing their jobs or losing their spouses. They get in trouble with the law and wreck their lives. Not wanting to face the facts, we decide to call it a disease for some of these things we do so we don't have to face the guilt. But we don't avoid it. We still have it, don't we? I don't care what the psychologists and everybody says out there. People feel guilty about these things. We're not fooling anyone. We're especially not fooling God. You see what's going on here? We believe the lie that bad moral behavior is really not that bad. Well, we believe that until we get hurt, of course. So we are wicked and unrighteous, guilty and deserting of punishment. And that's why what we're reading today should be shaking us up and waking us up. Seek the Lord. Call on Him. Does He really want me to do this? Yes, He does. You need to forsake your way, which is wickedness and unrighteousness, unrighteous thoughts. 
They're killing you and you don't even know it. And he's trying to rescue you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be hearing his words right now. Well, you have to forsake those things. Put them away and do what? Well, he tells us in the next verse, And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. What? Can that really be true? What would he want with wicked and unrighteous people? Well, it says right here, he wants to pardon us. Truth be told, he wants to pardon us more than we want to be pardoned. I don't know about you, but for those of you who know the Lord, it took a long time for God to convince me. About 10 years, I had no interest in any pardon or any God. Why does somebody so great have any interest in people like me or, or others? Well, he explains it in verse 8. Isaiah 55, 8. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. He's saying, I'm not like you. And since he's talking about pardon, let's discuss the difference between how we pardon and how he's pardoned. You should get the idea, all right? I've got uh, four points here on that. Okay, people. People find it difficult to pardon at all, don't we? They harbor malice, they seek revenge, they're slow to forgive an injury. Not so with God. He harbors no malice, he has no desire for re revenge, and he has no reluctance to forgive, despite what some people might tell you. Well, you said, well, we, we forgive sometimes. Yeah, I'll tell you when we're willing to forgive, because I've been like this. We're only willing to forgive certain people because of our bias, their usefulness to us, or perhaps we owe them. We forgive people and then use it as extortion, hold it over their heads. God is willing to forgive anybody, and once it's done, it's over. It's behind. It's gone. He forgives like that. Very big difference. Let's talk about number of offenses. People, if they forgive once, are slow to forgive a second time, aren't they? Oh yeah, we put the brakes on real fast. And we're still more reluctant to forgive a third time. And if the offense is often repeated, we just refuse to forgive altogether. Well, the reality is some people cannot even forgive the first time. Not so with God. No matter how often we have violated His law, yet He can multiply forgiveness in proportion to our faults. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that good? Wouldn't it be horrible if He was like us? I don't want Him to be like me. Let's talk about the number of offenders. People may pardon one or a few who injure them, but if that number is greatly increased, their compassions are closed. <laughs> Done. They feel like all the world's against me, not forgiving anybody. Not so with God, thank God. No matter how numerous the offenders, though they embrace the inhabitants of the whole world, <laughs> he can extend forgiveness to us all. And he does. Remember I told you, he's not willing that any should perish, and he so loved the world 
right? Let's talk about the aggravation of the offenses. People will forgive a slight injury, right? That's easy to forgive. However, if it's aggravated, they are slow to pardon. Not so with God. No matter how aggravated the offense is, he's ready to forgive. He's not like us. How different is he from us? Look in the next verse, verse 9. Isaiah 55, verse 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That should be pretty clear by now, right? He's very different from us. How high are the heavens? <laughs> well, as far as we can tell so far, there is no end. We can't measure it. <laughs> Yeah, his ways and his thinking is far above ours. That's the point. And we're on really shaky ground when we try to judge him. Consider the ant trying to judge the man, right? It wouldn't make any sense at all. The ant is just disqualified at the get-go, just like that. One of our other problems is that we don't really see how good he is. Because there again, when we judge goodness, we look at goodness comparatively in this world. We see goodness around here, and that's the scale we use. When we think of the Ten Commandments, we think of laws that we have some difficulty keeping when it comes down to it, right? And if we're honest, we really don't want to. Sometimes they're very inconvenient to us, right? God doesn't have any problem keeping the laws. He loves the law. He knows its value. And we fail to realize these things, and we, and we suffer for it. Let's analyze some of them with respect to our world. <clears throat> Let's just look at one. Or we'll look at two. If you take something that's not yours, that's called stealing. You are a thief. I am a thief. It could be something as small as a pencil or something big, like some kind of embezzlement. It doesn't matter. It's taking something that's not yours. The principle applies. You can steal time from your employer, can't you? Now, if you tried to calculate all the locks that had to be used in the world, all the security systems that had to be put in place, and all the high-value storage systems so people and businesses could prevent loss, you'd not be able to add up those numbers, would you? There's so much stuff being taken on a daily basis that it's just mind-boggling. If you then put on top of that the value of the time of all people who've got to go out and pursue the thieves, right, and try to recover what was taken, now you're adding another enormous dollar amount on top of that, aren't you? Stealing is so common to us that we get jaded and we don't really realize how much it hurts us. You might laugh and think, ah, your friend stole something from the store, but you go in that same store to buy something and the price is where it is because that guy took something and the store had to pay for it, which means you pay for it. Can you calculate the fear of the thieves and the anger towards those who take things? How many sleepless nights have occurred because someone's life was violated by a thief? And I know there are people in here today, and myself included, who know exactly that. When you've been robbed, it's hard to sleep. If you try to calculate the value of all the things that have been stolen over the course of time, which is thousands of years, whether it's tangible or intangible, you'd not be able to do it, would you? Taking things. Thievery. Now contrast it with this. Imagine this. What if starting right now, right at this moment, no one 
ever took another thing for the rest of time. How would that change our world? You can leave your keys in your car. Don't need to lock your house at night. You don't need locks. Stores don't have to write off losses anymore. Don't need loss prevention programs. The police suddenly have all kinds of time now to solve other crimes. Company productivity would go up suddenly. They'd have less expenses because people were not taking things home. Banks don't get robbed. Jewelry stores don't have to be built like Fort Knox. In fact, we don't need Fort Knox anymore, do we? Those who have so little now don't have to worry about the devastation of somebody taking what little they have. Senior citizens don't lose their life savings to scammers. The whole disposition of the typical car salesman would be changed, wouldn't it? In fact, all sales, nope, I'm not picking on salesmen, but you know what I mean. Imagine the peace and the security that the world would suddenly have if people didn't take things. It would be revolutionary, don't you think? It would be impossible to calculate the sudden worldwide goodness that would we have as, as part of our life because we didn't have to worry about people taking things anymore. Do you see now a little bit of why he says his ways are higher than ours? And we just looked at one law. See how the vast difference of what our world would be like if we were actually like him? Let's take a far more serious law. What about murder? This is one people always talk about. Can you calculate the devastation of all the murders that happened over the last four or 5,000 years? We don't often talk about this, do we? It would be something we'd want to avoid, but we're going to talk about it today. The loss of life and the impact it's had on those related to the victim is beyond measure. Now, this also includes the angry thoughts and plans and weapons that were used to make the murder happen. Think of how many people's lives were permanently changed for the worse because of someone murdered in their family or in some other significant position in their life. Think of the time and the many money spent trying to solve murders. Think of the fear and the grief so many have had because of a murder. How many? Who knows? We have no idea. But it's on the news every night. <clears throat> Someone was shot, stabbed, run over the car, beat to death. And then we add to that the many lives of those who are dedicated to protecting us from murders even to the extent that they themselves get killed. How many funerals have been held for those who gave their lives for us? Go ahead, try and measure it. Put a value on it. We cannot calculate the losses, which are far more than material when it comes to this particular subject. Now let's do the same we did with thievery, right? Imagine for a moment that there was never going to be another angry person who took someone else's life ever again for the rest of time. How would that change our world? No one would ever lose their life again to the hands of another. Problems would be solved without resorting to violence. An enormous amount of fear would suddenly be out of our lives. And the news reports would be radically changed, wouldn't they? No need to spend money and all the protection just in case someone might want to kill you. <clears throat> 
Think of all the bad areas in cities and neighborhoods around us where the murder rate is high. Now think of how those cities, those neighborhoods would be transformed if you just removed this one crime. All over the world, violence ceasing to exist. Just this one law would revolutionize life as we know it. Now do you see how his ways are higher than ours and certainly better, right? Why would you not want to seek him? <clears throat> if I know that he is like this, how should I respond, huh? <clears throat> Estimate the impact and the value that God would have on the earth if man would only listen to him and do what he says. What he's told us to do is only for our own good. He's not like us, but it makes me want to seek him, doesn't it, you? It makes me want to call on him. It makes me want to be like him. His ways are fantastic, incredible, wonderful. Some, some, some say the Bible is not relevant today. Well, if you think about what we just talked about, I don't think they know what they're talking about, do you? We have so many programs, spend billions trying to reform, we become activists, we sign petitions, we vote in elections, we fight, scream, debate, trying to make our world better. And we fail to really make anything permanently better. I thought about this recently. When you think about what everybody's trying to do, <clears throat> they're seeking for a perfect world. And yet they deny heaven exists. It gives you a clue to the problem. And here he is saying, seek me, call on me. Don't you think that the one who is like this could possibly make a huge difference in your life? The only question is, is how can he forgive so much wrong? Isn't there hell to pay? There should be when you consider just the two crimes we talked about. There are a whole lot more that's been going on. If some of us were God, we would take this world and just toss it in the trash and say, it's good for nothing. <clears throat> Well, the fact is, he didn't do that, or we wouldn't be sitting here today. Amen. How did he fix this? Well, the explanation will not only answer the question, but it will also give you an idea of how far God has been willing to go to save us from ourselves, which is really what we need. It's commonly known that a parent who has a child that is in a lot of pain will wish they could have the pain instead. Isn't that true? Yeah. They would rather suffer than have their child suffer. Now, were the child in need of a kidney transplant and the parent could be a donor, you bet they would, wouldn't they? Right? You have two kidneys, it's not, you can spare one. Just need some surgery. There's some pain and stuff involved there and, and recovery. But that could help the child and the parent would do it. What if your child needed a liver, though? You cannot live without your liver. Maybe that's why they call it liver. <laughs> and let's... I don't mean to get funny, but... Um, the problem is, is that a parent couldn't give up their liver for a child, could they? Because you only have one, right? But let's say there are, there are, there are no donors. There's no possible way this child's going to live because they cannot find a liver. If it were possible, would the parent give up a liver? Yeah, they would. It's not possible because if you remove a liver from somebody, you'll kill them, and that won't be allowed. 
but a parent will wish they could do it to save the life of their child. Now imagine a criminal who killed a young man but was caught. And in prison he finds out he's dying because he has liver disease. Would the dad of the son who was killed be glad? Justice being served, huh? The man is his enemy. He killed his son. What if the father's liver was the only perfect liver available? And what if he had compassion on the criminal and gave him his liver? Unheard of. It would never happen. The thought would never even go across anybody's mind. But that very thought went across God's mind. You see, you and I did not need a liver transplant. We needed to be saved from hell. But who could, and even more importantly, who would do that? Because we're the enemy of God. We broke all his laws. We don't show any regard for him. And that's why it's wonderful that the scripture says, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above yours. And if you look at Romans 5.8, we get the answer. Because it says there, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, you getting that? It says, God demonstrates his own love in that while we broke all his laws, lived thoughtlessly without him, took his name in vain, shook our face, fist in his face, or ignored him entirely, or even said he doesn't exist. Or in short, while we were still his enemies, Jesus paid the price for all our sins. How could that be? Because his ways are not our ways. <laughs> he is not like us. And that's why we believe the Bible. It tells us something that man would never think of. But I'm glad God did. He could have wiped us all out, thrown us all into hell instead. He paid the debt for our crimes. And he offers us a complete pardon. Who would have thought? Aren't you glad today that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts? And I would just add one more thing to this. Because some people have looked at Christians and said... Your enemy did that to you. How can you forgive them? And I'm here to tell you, as well as other people in this room can too, listen, if God can forgive me for all my sins, then I can forgive anybody for anything. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, these are tremendous words. It's hard to measure their value to us. We cannot understand how you can be like you are, but we are so glad that you are. I sure hope and prayed today, Lord, that those who don't know you will see you're not like us, but you are wonderful. You're gracious, merciful, loving, and Lord, we have not understood you, but we need to help us today. Help them come to understand just how deeply and how greatly you really do care for them. And for those of us who know you, Lord, 
it's good for us to contemplate this too because we know what you've done and it's incredible in our eyes and we thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.